0: Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Animals helping humans in the unlikeliest of ways. Now, they might be a bit annoying, but bird droppings actually having a lot of helpful effects on keeping the planet cool in the Arctic. Plus, we find out about connection between platypuses and tackling diabetes, as well as just why orchid mantises have such unusual characteristics. Diabetes is a serious health issue that can impact, in Australia, at least 1.7 million people. It comes in a couple of different types. Type 1 diabetes, where the pancreas doesn't produce enough insulin at all, Um, and type 2, which generally is a later onset one, which involve where the pancreas either doesn't produce enough insulin or doesn't really produce insulin that's not very effective. Regardless of the type that you have it is a life-altering medical condition and leads to a lot of changes in the way that you live your life, the food that you eat as well as the regular shots of insulin that you have to take. Now sufferers of diabetes have actually found potential help from a place that no one really expects it. And when it comes to the natural world, one of the strangest creatures is the platypus. It's a monotreme, and it has a duck's bill, a sleek body, but it's, uh, but it's a mammal that lays eggs. And, and overall, just a little bit of an odd case. And there's a couple of them in Australia. We have a large number of them, such as the platypus and the echidna. And they're pretty unusual when it comes to the animal kingdom but they also have a very unusual feature that can actually help people with diabetes. Now, researchers from University of Adelaide and Flinders University have been looking into a particular hormone, hormone which is known as glycogen-like peptide one, or GLP-1. And normally this is secreted inside humans' guts as well as in animals, and it generally stimulates the release of insulin to lower the overall blood glucose in the body. And this is great, this is very useful, this is one of the things that is quite important. But the problem is that GLP-1 actually degrades very, very quickly. And in people with type two diabetes, this means that the, the bump that they get, which is, hey, I need you to help, you know, uh, lower the blood glucose levels, um, GLP-1 isn't very effective for them because it just basically doesn't last long enough to really have any impact. And this is is bad. But interestingly, A very high source of GLP-1 is actually monotremes like the echidna and the platypus. Now, platypus, not only aside from having duck bills and laying eggs, they also have a little stum spike, which is very, very venomous. And they use this in combative as well as hunting purposes. Now, interestingly... The platypus is producing GLP-1 much the same way as we do for their guts to help regulate their blood glucose levels, which is fine. But they seem to have developed for another reason the ability to produce GLP-1 in their venom sacs and then transfer that uh, through their little venomous spike. And it seems that this is used in their combative mating rituals. Now this is really, really interesting. When, you look, when they look at the male... Platypus, they see that they actually produce an awful lot more of the GLP 1 and they produce it in two different places. But it's a bit more complex than that because the type of GLP 1 they produce, this particular hormone, is much more stable. Instead of degrading and fading away within a minute, which is what happens in humans, this one lasts for substantially longer. It's actually incredibly stable. And this is because in platypuses, since they use it in their venom, it actually has been evolved to be more consistently present because it gives them an advantage in that area. Once they, you know, hit, attack another platypus and hit them with this, this hormone obviously does damage to their opponents and ends up being beneficial for them to have a very stable, longer lasting one. And that that's really amazing. So millions of years of evolution have gone into shaping and making this hormone a lot more stable than it is in humans and other animals. Now, the method that they're using to make that hormone more stable is important, but also the fact that that hormone can be made stable and perhaps mimicked and copied could help with insulin-based treatments or um, diabetes treatments for people suffering, particularly type two diabetes. And this is great news because it can show that we can learn something from this strangest of animals and use it to help millions of people in Australia and across the world who are suffering from a very difficult medical condition. So when you picture the Arctic or the Antarctic, you think of a wide, sparse, clean and pure ice-filled wasteland. But the reality is that if you go anywhere near a particular animal colony, maybe some seals, some penguins, or some migratory seabirds, what you'll find is not quite so picturesque as it appears. In fact, it can smell an awful lot. And what you're smelling is the guano of all these animals on the rocks, the small bits of rocks that aren't completely covered in ice, where these birds, seals, or other animals are living. And it seems that, according to research published by the Colorado State University in Nature, that this smelly, guano-filled rock colonies are actually what's helping keep the Arctic cool. So... Now it, we have to take a step back here and consider what's actually involved inside guano. And guano is basically a fancy scientific way for bird poo, or really any other type of animal dropping. And that in of itself is something to, to know about, but when it sort of degrades and decomposes it releases ammonia, uh, basically through a uh, process. And from the ocean, when it the ocean sort of just has its general water cycle, it does things oxidize a little bit, and the end result is you get ammonia and sulfuric acid sort of just appearing in the atmospheric chemical process mix around these guano droppings at bird colonies, for example. So, when this is mer- the ammonia and the sulfuric acid from the guano is merged with some water, what you end up is some weird atmospheric particles are produced, and this ends up having an overarching impact on cloud droplet size. So in the water cycle, when we see the evap- water evaporate from the ocean, go up into the sky, form clouds, and they rain get back down, as a pretty quick summary of how the evaporative cycle works, what they found is that the inclusion of ammonia and sulfuric acid actually has the tendency to increase the diameter of these droplets from 50 to 80 nanometers. So it doesn't seem like a very large distance. But the end result is that the cloud reflectivity increases because there's basically more cloud droplets in the area for the same amount of water content. So you get more bang for your buck in reflectivity out of the same volume of water. Now that means that there's less solar radiation coming in because more of it is bounced off the clouds and back into space. The net impact of that is, of course, something that's a local area that's much cooler so based on data from other research into colonies of seabirds and other animals as well as the basically the atmospheric emissions researchers from colorado university built a complex model that looked at this chemical process this life cycle of chemical process and then did some analysis to see if they could mess around with the number of colonies have an impact on cooling or lack of cooling in the areas so when you take in or add or take away the seabirds Model in the model, what ends up happening is a change of about 40% um, in nitrogen ammonia concentration and this leads to a shift in obviously in cloud droplet size and thus temperature change too. The the technical calculation they use for how much this will actually help cooling is about um, minus 5 or a reduction of 0.5 watts per square metre in arctic cooling area impact. And right around the colonies, about one watt per square meter of additional cooling, which is a lot of energy just produced by this chemical decomposition of the bird droppings. That just goes to show you that some of the interesting things that happen in our planet uh, and the complexities of our climate system is very difficult to model. That's why it's very important that we study it. This is some good research out of Colorado State University into behavior and impact of, of animals on their ecosystem around them, but also the interconnected nature between animals and the environment. Mantises are very interesting and fascinating insects. Not only are they very complicated in body structure, they also have very unusual mating habits and are super and highly evolved camouflage masters. Like the stick insect, mantises are designed to sort of be in amongst the flowers and to eat and attack other prey. That's why they are praying mantises, both as a bit of a pun, because they look like they're praying, but also because they prey on other insects. And research out of the Cleveland Museum of Natural History in Australia have been looking into the mantis, in particular the orchid mantis, Hymenopus coronatus, which is found in Sarawak and Borneo. And it's very interesting, because this particular type of mantis has very different characteristics physically between the male and the female of the species. And it's actually very interesting to watch how these have diverged and got even further apart over time. Now, the females in the this orchid mantis have evolved to be more like the flowers where they hide themselves amongst. They've gotten larger, And they have better colour changes over the length of their body. Brown and white with some transparent rings to really blend in with the flowers, the orchids, where they're living. To give them advantages in size as well as camouflage over things such as bees that are living or visiting the flowers. Enables them to go after and get more prey. Those that are more camouflaged and better blended in are more successful and are more likely to reproduce and thus pass on these traits thus leading to that trait getting more and more passed along by comparison the male of the species has gotten smaller and smaller and more camouflaged enabling them to stay undercover out of the way and avoid being eaten by things such as birds and other and other creatures that hunt the mantis themselves And the key part about this is that it's sort of different to the way we normally see this, what is referred to as sexual dimorphism, where there's differences in the physical appearance between the male and the female of a species. Generally, uh, changes in the female are often thought to be associated with increased female egg production. But in this case, it's more because the females are so much more successful predators hunting and gathering food than the male counterparts, and the male counterparts are really just there to survive. In fact, they're not only just blending in, but mimicking flowers in a kind of floral simulation method, which enables them to be even more successful as predators. So having seen this difference in the species, they started to trace through the evolutionary lineages of these species of orchid mantis and sort of found where that divergent point was and note how, really, the the male mantis is more like the traditional form of the mantis and it's only the females that have sort of gained this newly developed trait that enables them to be much more successful. And the males just haven't developed it because they don't need to. It shows a very interesting way and in this whole process has been developed. The, the changes in the females' ecological and biological structure is being rewarded in this case by becoming the dominant feature of the species. And that is what's being seen in its evolutionary journey. So it just goes to show that there's more that meets the eye when it comes to the simple mantis, and that they've gone a long way to get that particular look and structure. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. This week we found out about platypuses' link to helping tackle diabetes, plus seabird colonies helping keep the planet cool with their guano, and how praying mantises ended up with their particular shape. Our ending theme was composed by Audio analytics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.